0: This is the huddle.com Lifecast. We're talking to inspired and insightful people who have faced life's greatest challenges and broken through. Welcome everyone to the huddle.com Lifecast. I'm your host, Mark Stolo. I'm joined today by Derek DeBraga. Derek is an addictions and mental health counselor, and he's also among our network of huddle pros. Derek, welcome to the huddle life cast.
1: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: You're in a space where ultimately you're confronting and, um, or people that you're servicing are confronting a kind of, uh, a spectrum of pain and painful related experiences, When we talk about addiction and we talk about trauma. We're talking a lot about people who are at some level trying to work through like very intense emotional experiences that can be painful that are as a byproduct of pain that they've experienced in the past. Um, but pain is also commonly known to everyone. It's just part of the human condition is to feel an experience of pain to abide in a place of pain Um, and i want to talk today with you about what it's been like for you in your practice helping people work through painful experiences uh, how often pain can be derailing for people in their lives when it's something that's not addressed or something that's not looked at maybe it would be helpful to get started to talk or, or for you to kind of define what you understand as like, what is pain? When you think of pain in the context of the work you do, what is it?
1: Mm -hmm. So in the context of my work and and from my experience, uh, I think I would say pain is, pain is an experience, it's a thought, it's an emotion that I would say is felt in the body um, and that is experienced in the body and maybe understood in the mind. So there's kind of an association there between uh, mind and body. Um, and it's an unpleasant one. It's an unpleasant experience or thought or emotion. It's an uncomfortable one. Um, and I think that uh, identifying it as something that is physical in the body is really important because it, it allows, a, I think that's how we can get to a point of addressing it uh, in a more effective way. It could, it could often be intellectualized. It can often be something that we overthink or, or or simply just try to think uh think about it consciously but when we really transfer it to or, or begin to think about it as a somatic experience as well and a reaction to different things in our life i think that that's when we can really start to work with it differently
0: yeah it's interesting because i think i would guess that most people kind of categorize pain in two ways there's the pain that's impacted my body like i stub my toe that's painful um or there's thoughts I'm having that are eliciting feelings that are painful, right? So, or feelings that are unpleasant. But you're saying that from your perspective, pain always has some anchor in the body?
1: So, yeah, again, so this is this is my take on it. This is based on my work experience. I think that where that comes from for me and the things that I've read and, and my understanding of pain is that if we consider thoughts and language in the mind and ideas and emotions, um, those don't necessarily carry a weight to them those don't necessarily carry a discomfort to them we see that because we can we can work through different practices and different mechanisms to learn to cope with painful emotions painful thoughts painful experiences so that they no longer affect us in a way that we consider uncomfortable or unpleasant and no longer painful so we can we can get to a point where we disconnect the painful feelings of what we would at one point call painful emotions, painful thoughts, painful memories. And I think that that disconnection is really learning to acknowledge the body's reaction to those thoughts Mm -hmm. and those uh, cognitive processes. So yeah, I think it's important that anytime we see it as painful, it does have a connection to the body. And and again, like I said, that's, that's where we can begin to work on it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, uh... Obviously, understanding the relationship between, you know, quote unquote, painful thoughts, painful emotions, how that's impacting on the body from breathing systems to storing pain in your body. This is a common experience um, for people who some people have like chronic pain issues as as a result of like harbored trauma or right. They're just storing pain in their body. There's a lot of interesting research in that space. Um, but it's interesting in your work that you've discovered this really very clear link between the, experience, the interpretation of thoughts and feelings as painful, because you're right, it's an interpretation, right? Um, I spoke recently about with David about this idea that a thought is a thought is a thought, but it's the interpreter that turns that thought into something that's either pleasant or unpleasant, right? Absolutely. And to two different people, the same thought may not elicit the same painful response or the, the sense of suffering. So their context matters, what they've been experiencing matters, how they judge that thought is going to matter, right? For someone having a loved one break up with them can mean the absolute end of their world because they have maybe some issues around abandonment or fear of loss. And for others, they see that as less painful and a natural part of transitioning in life, right? Going from one relationship to another.
1: Absolutely. And I think that so for me, when you said that, you know, I discovered it, I, I discovered this connection, I think, through studying, first of all, it's not as if it's something that I, I created or I thought of, but in having, you know, put some time and energy and and, and, and work in place to kind of explore what the people, uh, what what researchers and what scientists and what therapists and what people who've come before me have figured out is this connection and realizing it in in sessions with patients um it's something kind of real recent. I mean, I haven't been a therapist for that long, but when I, when I began to realize that I, I, I made the shift between, um, simply addressing thoughts, simply addressing the way that people think. And I, I realized over time that, that never really addressed the way that we were able to change those reactions, change those behaviors associated with those thoughts. Um, it seemed like it wasn't really addressing the whole picture. I was missing something. And as I started to really make this connection with more of a somatic experience to emotions uh, and thoughts, you start to see that people uh, become a, a lot more uh, effective at making the changes that they want to make in their life, whatever that is, whether it's uh, changes related to substance misuse or changes related to past experiences, thoughts, traumas. Um, it, it, you know it, it really accelerates the process as you take in the whole body as um, as, a, as a being that experiences these painful thoughts uh, or emotions.
0: Do you have an example, I mean obviously with respect to confidentiality, but an example of something that came up in work with a client where that connection was made and it kind of created a certain amount of freedom to, to where you saw that connection more on a somatic level or how that pain was being expressed?
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, without giving any specific examples, when I've worked with people who in one way or another have had some kind of experience that they would describe as traumatic without having necessarily diagnosed them with uh, any kind of traumatic disorder or anything like that, many of the patients that I've worked with who have lived through something really difficult, either the loss uh, or a breakup of a relationship or something like that, that can be considered traumatic to them, I realize that identifying where they feel that pain, because they might say, I feel really sad. I feel really hurt. And then, you know, I learned, I learned to be able to ask them, I learned the ability to ask them, where do you feel that? And then realizing that they can actually pinpoint an area in the body, whether it's the chest or the abdomen, or or the area around the gut, uh, as being really uncomfortable, as soon as they think of this experience, as soon as they think of the feelings associated with it, You know, that's kind of an aha moment. But again, it's things that I've learned through other professionals having studied this. And the most amazing thing is once they start tuning into that, once they start really experiencing the the physical sensations of their association that they've made to these thoughts and to these emotions, it becomes a lot, uh, it becomes possible to slowly dissolve or to process what's being felt rather than just processing words, rather than just processing language. If they can process the association that their body makes to that language, to those words, um, you really kind of disconnect that, that electrical charge that is the stress response in a lot of ways in the body to these thoughts and feelings. And then over time you get to a point where you can talk about something and yes, you acknowledge that it, maybe it feels, uh, maybe it hurts or maybe it makes you feel sadness but it doesn't have the same response. So I think when we talk about pain, there's there's varying degrees of it. And we talk about treating pain, or emotional pain specifically, um, I don't know if we should ever be working towards not feeling any pain at all. I think that's part of the human condition. It's part of our experience. Um, The degree to that pain is really important. How much it affects you, how much it interferes with your ability to work, your ability to maintain healthy relationships. All of that is really important. So if you can make it more tolerable, then someone could acknowledge that, yes, I feel pain and I'm okay. Yes, I feel pain and I can still function. I can still love myself. I can still do what's important for me and feel that I'm growing and progressing in my life.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a transformative revelation for people to, I just wrote a piece about this, about the difference between how we relate to what we would describe as unpleasant experiences or emotions versus the experiences themselves. You know, you cannot rid your life of experiences that um, don't paint some ideal portrait. Really, a lot of this work is just how you're relating to them. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you can't empty your life of, you know, anger, sadness. You're going to experience, you know, challenging thoughts, challenging emotions, um, but your relationship to them is so critical in terms of your ability to function. What are some ways that, like, I don't want to use the word dysfunctional because I don't. I, there's just a, just a strong value judgment on that. But what are some of the ways people react to pain that don't that are let's call them less adaptive in their lives in ways that that are not going to help them necessarily relate affirmatively to the experience of pain? What are some of the ways common ways that people react?
1: So there's a lot of ways. Obviously, I, um, I think that so from a psychodynamic type of approach, I think we would talk about defense mechanisms, uh, and those defense mechanisms, um, you know, you can go through them. But some of the obvious ones are just denial, mm-hmm. um, avoidance. You know, just really not really considering or, or really not really uh, not really allowing yourself to experience that. So using different kinds of defenses, like denial, is one. Um, There's there's a lot of different defense mechanisms, uh, you know, repressing it, kind of unconsciously putting them aside. Uh, A lot of these are are psychological kind of defense mechanisms. There's also behavioral defense mechanisms um, or behavioral reactions. We can consider substance misuse, obviously in the field that that I'm working in. That's one that I tend to talk about and think about very often. Um, Using a substance, using either a substance or a behavior That provides you with some temporary relief, provides you with some temporary reward to be able to continue to function. You know, we often see people, we often consider, or some people consider um, drug users, people who gamble, uh, people who engage in other kinds of addictive behaviors, and see them under a very negative uh, lens, when really I think it's important to consider that there's, uh, their behavior has a function. And, and very often, that be, the function of that behavior is to treat and cope with pretty severe pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and not always that severe, but you know, again, on, on, a, on a spectrum, depending on how severe it is, it works very well. Some of these substances do a very good job of allowing us to completely escape, um, and, and in a physical way too, escape the physical reactions. We don't always forget the pain consciously, but our body is able to feel some type of temporary relief. Um, So substances is one. We might, you know, use other kinds of uh, psychological defense mechanisms, rationalization, sublimation, things like that, to really kind of just justify some of the things that we're feeling and and try to make sense of it in a different way. Um, Not to get too complicated, but there's more primitive ways of coping with pain more defense more primitive defense mechanisms and there's more mature defense mechanisms like rationalization like we're talking about not everybody's capable of doing that and some people's reaction to pain is very very primitive they might act out they might um, get very upset and very aggressive as soon as they feel any kind of emotional pain so there's a huge huge spectrum spectrum and i think when we consider as you know as therapists or life coaches or any kind of person in the supportive or helping and healing field, I think it's important to be able to pick up on the way that someone is addressing their pain because they might not always be aware. And I think that that's really important. If we can help people become aware of how they're addressing pain, then they can choose. Do I want to continue to address my pain that way? Or do I want to come up with another way? Mm -hmm. And for me, that's where the harm reduction approach to substance use kind of uh, presented itself because I realized that i no longer had to abide by this mentality. That was as a, as an addiction therapist, I know the best way for someone to get well from substance use and that's stopping to use period. That's how I was kind of taught early on in my career. That was kind of the um, that was the perspective. Um, In the the place where I was working and uh, as I kind of became more interested in um, the science and the research behind what's best practice, you realize that harm reduction addresses the pain much more than something like abstinence completely. Uh, And not everybody that's working in an abstinence model, you know, uh, might agree with that. Uh, And I don't think everybody ignores the pain who is trying to work from an abstinence point of view. But this idea of harm reduction is really much more compassionate in my perspective and allows the acknowledgement of pain to take center stage and then giving the person the ability to choose in a supportive way how they're going to address that and not judging the way that they're going to address that mm-hmm. and that's really important i think
0: what what are the what's the difference between how different people interpret pain right so I've heard you say, and we kind of agree that pain is something even using the word pain. I mean, it's a challenge with the second you say it, there's a value judgment on it, right? Because you don't say pain to anyone and they're like, wow, pain. Can I, where can I get more of that? There's an an inherent value judgment attached to it. It's something that we deem to be unpleasant or something we do not want. No one wants pain in their lives, Um, which is where we talk about it just as an experience, What's the difference between how one person interprets that experience versus how another person interprets that experience? Like, what are the factors that influence whether Mark Stolo finds that extremely painful and Derek finds that just one more experience among his other, you know, stream of experiences?
1: Yeah, you got some some good questions, some difficult questions to answer. Uh, I'll do my best in answering that. I would say that it has to, it goes back to how we learn. To make the associations, or how we learn to, um, uh, how we learn to cope, our ability to self-soothe—all from a very young age, uh, we learn these things as children. We we learn these things through our experiences, through our primary caregivers, um, and as we go through our life, we we adapt and we grow. But a lot of how we cope is initially shaped in those early years of our life. So I think the difference between someone might be, you know, parts of it might be genetic, but a lot of it is experiential. A lot of it is how we see the people around us coping and how we've learned to cope in, in a function related to what we've seen and what we've experienced. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people will, will address or deal with pain very differently. And I think it has a lot to do with what we've seen and, and what we've tried already, and whether it's been effective or not. Um, and our ability to remain, to be, our ability to be aware of what we're actually doing, what we're trying to do, and then make a choice based on what we've done, whether it's helpful or not. So I think a lot of us, myself included, for a long time and still now, you know, we act impulsively, we act without thinking very often. Um, I do things every once in a while that I look back and say, oh, you know, I could have done that a lot better. I could have spoken a little bit more clearly. I could have put a little bit more thought into that. I could have been a bit kinder, all of these things. And I think the difference between someone that addresses pain in a maybe a more helpful way is the person's ability to constantly reflect on how they're addressing their pain or how they're living their life you know, in, a, in a bigger context all of their behaviors, continue to reflect them without judgment and say, okay, I can do it a bit better next time. And then making that effort to try and do something different the next time that isn't necessarily just avoiding it or putting it off or acting out aggressively, but is that trying to understand it and trying to address it uh, in a way that takes the whole thing into consideration, the body's reaction to pain and the thoughts associated with it and where those thoughts lead us.
0: What's your take on... Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting con- conversation about the interpreter of the pain and this idea of like thought replacement. So mm-hmm. some you know, you talk about how someone's relating to their pain through a filter, through an interpretation, and that interpretation is informed by past behavior, right? Always informed by past behavior. Because if you take something in its present form and you literally had a blank slate you would have no framework for interpretation of it right if i literally erased your memory in this moment and placed some content into the consciousness of you you would have no framework to evaluate its painfulness or it's not painfulness right you're just referring to some past experience
1: absolutely and i would also argue that maybe it'd be interesting to investigate maybe this has already been done but if you erase someone's memory what's felt in the body might not be erased necessarily. So it might be confusing on why we're feeling a certain way, not having the memories associated with it. And some people don't necessarily make those associations between what they're feeling in the body and what their mind is, how their mind is interpreting it. So I think that's also interesting.
0: Yeah, it'd be interesting to see the difference in terms of how your body adjusts to the pain versus, you're right, running that through a thought mainframe. But I guess it raises, what's interesting for me in the experience of talking about pain is it's a lot of conversation about how our sense of self is formed, right? It's a lot about the interpreter, um, which I think is where the where the real deep breakthrough is. Because I see that there's also this strain in the world of dealing with pain of what I would call positive thinking culture. And And this is, it's like delicate territory to talk about positive thinking because there's value in, in having a positive outlook, but there's also a kind of fallacy about your ability to, um, deny the pain through the use of positive thinking. Like if I just give you a positive affirmation, like hang in there, kid, that's enough to help you deal with the pain, right? I just have to like replace your not happy thought with a happy thought and you'll, feel well adjusted in your life why does that not work so well this this kind of notion of you know well just think positively and you know like it's i guess it's similar in the in the addiction world similar to saying well just stop drinking just stop just stop gambling you know why is there's
1: a, few, yeah, there's, a, I think there's a few reasons why that doesn't work or why it's not sustainable because it, it probably does work quite well you know if you can convince yourself Uh, to think differently, you can convince yourself of a different narrative. Um, Very likely that will change the way that you feel in the moment. And over time, you know, they, they understand that that can actually change the way that your brain makes associations to different experiences and different thoughts. And in time, you could retrain yourself. You can actually retrain your brain to think differently and to have different experiences just based on the thoughts that you're changing. And why it's not sustainable or why that isn't the be all end all of, of psychotherapy is just you know just think positively and that's it is because there's very often these underlying issues or these underlying responses that need to be addressed. You know, you, you, know, you give the, the example in substance use, just stop drinking or just stop using drugs doesn't work because it's not just about the decision to use drugs or not, it's about why we're doing, we're engaging in those behaviors. And why we're engaging in those behaviors is very complex for a lot of people, it's, you know, because of stress, because of pain, because of um, uncertainty in life or disappointment, or you know, all kinds of things. There's so many reasons why we seek out substances. So just thinking positively is like a band-aid. We really need to dig a little bit deeper, or sometimes a lot deeper, to really uncover what was there in our past, or, you know, in our, you know, recent past, even sometimes that is causing this, this reaction that's causing this, this emotional kind of reaction, because we might not always be consciously aware of why we think a certain way. Sometimes these things are unconscious based on where we live, based on the people we surround ourselves with, with based on our environment. So you need to dig a bit deeper. And, And again, just to make it back just to go back to like the somatic experience, sometimes these things are physical in the body. Sometimes these things are felt before they're thought of. Mm -hmm. Well, positive thinking could work to an extent, but if we're not taking the time to regulate our body's response to stress or our body's response to discomfort, that that tape is going to continue to play. It might play in the background, so what's obvious to you is these thoughts. What's obvious to you is the language that we, we tell ourselves. And that's easy to change because we can just, you know, r- write a few lines in our journal and repeat them over and over like a mantra, which, which can be effective. But again, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the whole behind the scenes. There's all of the production uh, that, that's, being, that's being done, you know, the lights and the cameras and all of that stuff, all the behind the scenes stuff that you can't ignore. And that has a really big impact on us.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the idea of, I guess, what's sometimes called shadow work or understanding kind of what's laying in the shadows of your consciousness that you're not, you know, aware of at a very high level and unpacking some of that content and to your point, you know, it could be. Something something that's driving your behavior that's latent that you just haven't been aware of. Something that happened to you when you were younger that had a marked impression on you that's been just kind of preying on your consciousness and driving certain behaviors. Um, kind of a learned model that it's just exists in your unconscious mainframe. And it's just influencing Absolutely. how you're acting out.
1: And we're, and we're talking about this in a pretty complex way in the sense that I, I want to say that I don't think everybody has, not everybody who's coming... To either huddle or some other uh, some other space to get help and to grow and to transform. Not everybody has these deep rooted um, pasts or traumas that need to be uncovered, need to be resolved. Um, off, you know, obviously in the case you know of my work that I was doing, that was quite often the case. More often than not, that was the case. Um, but you'll meet people once in a while, or I've met people once in a while that really don't connect with something from their past, and whether there is something there or not, you know that that's okay. Some people are more um, surface focused um, and, and tend to want to address more of the thoughts, more of the narrative and the language, and that could lead to incredible change and incredible transformation. So I don't want to give the impression that everybody has to dig very deep and really uncover some of these somatic, these physical reactions or these past traumas. It's not always the case, but it's important to consider that. Is there something in our life that we're not obviously aware of that isn't just upfront that we can explore. I like like to give the opportunity to really try and be aware of our entire experience, conscious enough.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good way of framing it is bringing the content into awareness so that we can relate to it. So rather than it acting on us, we're relating to it differently and we're seeing it as something that's influencing a process, right? It's like making it known. Taking that which is unknown and making it known. Thank you for that. Thank you for like sharing a perspective on understanding pain um, and how we experience pain. Because I think that's that's the big revelation for me is is this idea of how we experience the pain. You know, getting out of this place of understanding pain as this kind of standalone thing, you know, that exists without an interpreter. Yeah. Um, and you are the interpreter of pain in your life. And that gives you a lot of power over how you relate to that pain, right? I think part of what I hear you saying is part of the process of re-empowering people is understanding that they are exercising a choice in how they're relating to that pain. And the fact that you have a choice in how you're relating to that pain is a very powerful place to work from. And I I would guess that a lot of people who are in the throes of deep addiction, you know, deeply self-harming addiction, get to a place where they feel completely disempowered by that experience. They stop seeing themselves as an agent of being able to relate to this experience differently because they're so immersed in it, right? There's almost this feeling of like drowning in it.
1: I agree. And I would say just one thing on that is that in order to begin that process, in order to really be able to uh, engage that kind of change behavior or or change uh thinking it really needs to come from a place of safety i think that's really important you really need to begin to feel safe in your body in your mind and that uh, as a therapist i think is essential for me to help people create that foundation of safety Mm -hmm. because if you can get someone to feel comfortable in the present moment regardless of what's going on they really have a lot more to stand on they really have um Begin. They begin to have a lot more confidence to be able to take on things that are, are are scary or have been with them for years or or just really uncomfortable. So I want to emphasize that 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 safety that getting to a place of safety first is is essential for all of us to really begin to to change and to evolve and to grow.
0: Yeah, I think that's a brilliant point, particularly in the context of a therapeutic process, because I think for a lot of people therapy is intimidating because they feel like they're going into unsafe waters, right? It's like, oh, you're asking me to explore the murkiness that is me. And really what it, what so many great therapists do is they actually start by just creating a safe place. For some people who've never had a safe place to just, you know, share what's on their mind and share how they're experiencing their life. That's such a such a catharsis for people. It's huge.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Thank,
0: Thank you for that. So you can... Stay connected and keep learning with Derek on huddle.com. His handle on huddle is at Derek DeBraga, and we'll make sure to provide it in the link to the podcast. For those who are new to huddle, huddle is a place to meet amazing people who are sharing wisdom, finding support, and becoming the best versions of themselves. This has been the huddle.com LifeCast. I want to thank you for tuning in, and thank you for turning on to your lives.